would like to introduce uh, Dean Risa Golubov, who will start our conference off today. Dean Golubov is the 12th and the first female dean of the University of Virginia School of Law. She is a nationally renowned legal historian whose scholarship and teaching focuses on American constitutional and civil rights law, and especially their historical development in the 20th century. She is, in addition to being on our faculty, an affiliated scholar at the Miller Center and a faculty affiliate at the Carter Woodson Institute for African American and, and uh, African Studies. In 2012, she was named a distinguished lecturer by the Organization of American Historians. She has also won the University of Virginia's All-University Teaching Award. But there's something even more special about Dean Golubov, and that is uh, her first two books won virtually every major prize that one can win. Particularly, her first book, Lost Promise of Civil Rights, won the 2010 Order of the Coif Biennial Book Award, as well as the James Willard Hurst Prize. Now, some of you may not know uh, that the Order of the Coif Award is literally the highest award given for, a, for legal scholarship. We have no Nobel Prize uh, in law. It really, in the United States, is the Order of the Coif Award. So to win the Order of the Coif Award for your first book is quite an achievement. But then she went on with her second book, Vagrant Nation, Police Power, Constitutional Change in the Making of the 1960s, which was supported both by a Guggenheim Fellowship and a Frederick Burkhart Residential Fellowship from the American Council of Learned Societies. It then went on to win the American Historical Association's Littleton Griswold Prize, the Lillian Smith Book Award, the John Philip Reed Book Award, and the David Langan Prize in American Legal History, among other honors. How many more were there, uh, Frisa? So in any event, we are specially uh, uh, privileged at Virginia to have this wonderful lady as our dean, um, who is uh, literally one of the country's top uh, legal theoreticians, as well as a wonderful, wonderful human being with the great people skills that one always hopes their dean will have. Dean Golubov. Thank you, John, for that lovely introduction. I fear it was longer than my welcome remarks, but, but it was very nice, and I appreciate it. Uh, it's wonderful to see you all here today, and I want to welcome you to the University of Virginia Law School, uh, to Charlottesville. You are the hardy, intrepid souls who made it uh, despite the snow. Uh, and welcome you to the Center for National Security Laws Conference on Use of Bellum, Use of Force Principles for the 21st Century. Today will be an assessment of the legal framework for the use of U.S. military force in today's global environment, uh, with U.S. forces currently deployed and actively engaged on so many fronts. The subject is not only timely, but it's of huge, significant, strategic importance. Uh, you'll be looking at this topic from several perspectives, and I say you, sadly, I can't spend the day with you. I would if I could. Um, 
First, you'll begin this morning with an examination of the extraterritorial legal responses to counter international terrorism, which is a topic particularly relevant to the legal issues surrounding the use of force in a world in which states are consistently faced with terrorist activities conducted by non-state armed groups. Um, we are particularly pleased to have with us to address this topic Professor Yoram Dinstein, former dean himself of Tel Aviv University Law School. Uh, then the conference will explore the decisions of the International Court of Justice regarding the use of force, which have not, as some of you might know, always met with universal approval. And our own Professor Joan Norton Moore uh, will moderate a panel that will examine selected ICJ cases that have focused on instances of the use of force undertaken by members of the international community. Uh, I'm sad to learn uh, that the Judge Advocate General of the Army had to uh, cancel his appearance at lunch today, but I'm sure that will give you all time to digest the morning's activities. Um, after lunch, there'll be an exploration of United States executive branch uh, approach to uh, these questions in the form of an Obama administration report that was issued in December of 2016, right at the end of the Obama administration, uh, that was arguably the most comprehensive assessment of the legal bases for current U.S. use of military force and related national security operations ever compiled. And Professor Ken Anderson of the Washington College of Law of American University will lead a panel that will engage uh, in depth with that report. And th this discussion should be of particular interest uh, as Congress has recently mandated that the report will be updated. And so we anticipate a publication date of that update this May. Uh, now, while the principal focus of the conference will be, of course, on the international legal aspects of the use of force, another important aspect of the debate uh, in the United States is whether, uh, from a US domestic law perspective, there is need for a new congressional authorization for the use of military force, the AUMF. Uh, given the fact that the current 2001 AUMF has now been cited as the domestic legal justification for at last count 37 military operations in 14 different countries. So Professor Laura Donahue of Georgetown Law School and Professor Bob Turner of UVA will engage in a discussion as to whether such a new congressional authorization should be forthcoming. And then at the end of the day, you all will be lucky to hear from Professor Moore, uh, who will provide some concluding remarks. Um, as I look out at all of you, one of the things that makes me really happy to see is uh, the combination of civilian and military folks uh, welcoming our friends from the JAG School and elsewhere, having conversations like these across the academy across law school and JAG school from within and without, from policy perspectives, law perspectives, domestic and international. I think that is the way to have the most productive uh, and provocative conversations. And I am honored and proud to be hosting that. So thank you all so much. And I hope you have a wonderful day. Take care. Thank you very much, uh, Dean Golubov. It is now my privilege and pleasure to introduce the keynote speaker of the conference, uh, Dr. Yoram Dinstein. Uh, Dr. Yoram Dinstein is Professor Emeritus at Tel Aviv University in Israel, and since uh, 2010, President of the United Nations Association of Israel. In the past, he served as President, Rector, and Dean of the Faculty of Law of Tel Aviv University, he was twice a Stockton Professor of International Law at the U.S. Naval War College. As you know, that is the top professorship at the Naval War College. 
And he was also a Humboldt Fellow at the Max Planck Institute for International Law in Heidelberg, Germany. He is a member of the Institute of International Law. His latest books in English are War, Aggression, and Self-Defense, 2017, which I'm happy to have just received a copy of, and The Conduct of Hostilities Under the Law of International Armed Conflict uh, in 2016, of course, in addition to many other uh, books that he has written. Professor Denstein is also the founder and editor of the Israel Yearbook on Human Rights, which has now gone through 47 volumes. He served as the project director of the Program on Humanitarian Policy and Conflict Research at Harvard. Uh, he worked on the Manual on International Law Applicable to Air and Missile Warfare, and currently he is the project director of the preparation of the Oslo Manual on select topics of the law of armed conflict. Um, as I have, over the years, uh, been specially interested in uh, use ad bellum and use in bello law and looked at the scholars in the field, uh, my own view is that the uh, best of the scholars in the world that have dealt with these issues, and particularly the level of, uh, of dealing both with use ad bello and use in bello, uh, has been uh, Professor Joram Denstein. And so we are deeply honored to have him as our keynote speaker. Joram. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm uh, thrilled to be here uh, because all sorts of sinister forces try to prevent me from making it uh, to Charlottesville. But uh, like Hannibal crossing the Alps, I'm in a position to say I've done it. He lost a few elephants. I lost a few uh, remaining uh, non-white hair on my head, but I made it. It's not the first time that I'm here, uh, either in this building or in the one next door of uh, the JAG. And uh, I've been uh, following, uh, obviously, the activities of John Norton Moore, who is the dean, actually, of all experts in the world on the use at Bellum, and not only the use at Bellum. And uh, I'm also glad to be associated with Dave Graham, whom I met when he was uh, in the army and I was a Stockton professor representing the Navy, so to speak. And somehow, Army, Navy, we were on the same page. Okay, the subject that I'm dealing with today is very much uh, a topical, crucial, and uh, even fascinating subject that not everybody, even amongst the small community of international lawyers, is entirely familiar with. So it's worth discussion. And that is under attack by non-state actors uh, and self-defense. Now, first, a very brief introduction. Uh, that is that uh, I'm not dealing with uh, domestic terrorism. 
That is to say atrocities like uh, the one that everybody remembers in Oklahoma City, or more recent ones, are purely domestic in character and are there for the domestic system, in these instances, uh, the American legal system, to take care of it. International law has no standing whatsoever. Uh, in other words, we are talking only about activities of non-state actors that uh, originate in a foreign country. And I want to mention here, en passant, that uh, if it takes place on the high seas aboard a ship, a vessel, or in a flying aircraft, then the vessel and the aircraft are assimilated to the territory of the flag state in the case of the vessel, or the state of registration in the case of uh, the aircraft. The same would also apply, it hasn't happened yet, to satellites uh, in orbit, outer space. A satellite will be registered in some state. Okay, so we, what we are dealing with here is activities from foreign state. But once more, we have to exclude certain scenarios. The number one scenario that we have to exclude is that of non-state actors acting as surrogates of a foreign state, which is actually acting by proxy. Now, this is now, and I give here the obvious example of Hezbollah and Iran. There are lots of other examples. Okay, now, uh, in such cases, actually, the term non-state non uh, uh, actors is a misnomer because the so-called non-state actors are state actors, not non-state actors, uh, except that it happens by proxy. And the usual modern terminology is to call them de facto organs of that state. De facto is distinct from the jure, the jure uh, organs of the state, but uh, the law of state responsibility is very clear. Whether organs are de facto organs or the euro organs, the state to which the acts can be attributed assumes full responsibility. So these are acts of state and not acts of non-state uh, actors. Uh, the test under customary international law is obvious. The test is so-called effective control. That is to say, a state which has de facto organs has them, or rather they are regarded as its de facto organs because it has effective control over them. Uh, there is, a, however, a dispute as to the definition of effective control in this instance. The dispute, curiously enough, is between the International Court of Justice on the one hand and the Yugoslav Tribunal, the ICTY, on the other hand. The Yugoslav Tribunal has consistently uh, departed from the doctrine of the ICJ and has even used rather strong language in which it uh, deprecated the ICJ ruling. Uh, the the, this is not the subject of my lecture today. It deserves a separate lecture. It's a, an interesting and important subject. All that I can say very briefly is that uh, the ICJ believes that 
the state, whose de facto organs it is, must micromanage them. That is to say, give them day-to-day -day instruction as to what to do. The Yugoslav tribunal rejects that uh, as uh, practically nonsense, saying it's enough to have overall control. That is to say, it's enough for the state to give them ultimate parameters for action, who to act against, what to do, and leave them, actually, the, the daily call of uh, actions that they are prepared uh, to activate. As I said before, I shall not get into it, but remember, notwithstanding the disagreement between the two courts, both are agreed that what is required is effective control. So the term effective control has become holy gospel here. Now, uh, another point to, to make, and an insight that one has to internalize, is that sometimes an armed attack is launched by non-state actors. However, the state, which originally was not involved at all, was not complicit to the act when the act was, when the act was carried out, nevertheless subsequently endorses it, so to speak. Uh, this uh, happened on several famous occasions, one of which I do not mention here, and that is the Tehran uh, um, case where the U.S. embassy and consulate were taken over by militants originally acting on their own, but within a week or so, the Tehran government of the Ayatollahs endorsed their action, and from there on it became an Iranian armed attack. The example that I give here is even more uh, well known, and that is 9-11 actually was perpetrated, of course, by Al-Qaeda. The Taliban government in Kabul was not involved in that action at the time. However, he then decided deliberately to ignore calls by the United States and more importantly by the Security Council to surrender bin Laden uh, to, judgment, to trial and instead gave him shelter. By giving him shelter, it endorsed the armed attack of 9-11. And therefore, after uh, a proper ultimatum, which was ignored by them, the US and the large coalition that decided to fight alongside the United States started an international armed conflict on October 7th. So the war against Afghanistan was not directly for 9-11, but it was for the endorsement of 9-11 between 9-11, between September and October. Okay, again, an interesting subject to pursue, different lecture. Now, the fountain or at, at origo, to use the Latin term, the fountain and origin of the law of self-defense is, of course, Article 51 of the Charter of the United Nations, which, however, is today, without any doubt, replicated in customary international law in substance. And uh, I put in here the, the main part of Article 51, and what I'm trying to emphasize is that, curiously enough, interestingly enough, the framers of the article, who were very careful 
in their terminology throughout the charter, and Article 51 in particular, did not say an armed attack by one state against another, which they could have easily said. Instead, they said an armed attack against a member state of the United Nations, a member uh, of the United Nations, i.e. a state. So the important word here is against. Nowhere is there an indication explicitly or implicitly that armed attack has to be launched by a state against that other state. And for that, for that reason, when non-state actors launch an armed attack, it can be from within a foreign state. So again, I emphasize the three words, against, which is there, by, which is not, and from, which, I'm, which is what I'm uh, stressing now. And uh, until 9-11, it was actually argued in the legal literature whether it's enough for non-state actors to act from within the territory of a foreign state in order for the action to qualify as an armed attack under Article 51. I have maintained that. Uh, John was good enough to show you the sixth edition of my book. In the first edition, which preceded 9-11 by, by a decade, I, more than a decade, I suggested that, but I was taken to task by serious people whom I greatly admire, who said, uh, what do you base that? Well, nobody will take me to task today because of 9-11, and the response to 9-11, A, the two major Security Council resolutions, 1368 and 1371, which clearly established the ground for self-defense, and even more interestingly, the NATO decision. Remember, Article 5, famous Article 5 of the North Atlantic Treaty of 1949, which establishes the rule that uh, an armed attack against one member qualifies as an armed attack against all. You know, the three musketeers principle, uh, one for all, all for one. Uh, Article 5 has never been activated between 1949 and the present day, except 9-11. So it was never activated against a state directly. It was activated as regards an attack by non-state actors in 9-11 against the United States. And it wasn't only the Security Council NATO, it was also the Organization of American States and others. I mean, I don't list here all the, all the sources. Now, what is the obligation of a foreign state? The obligation of a foreign state is clear-cut under customary international law. It was referred to in the Corfu Channel case and so on. And that is not to allow its territory to be used as a base of operations on the attack against a foreign state. That's beyond dispute. That's motherhood. But the question is, what does it mean allow? It is not allowed. To, if you don't mind my replicating the term, it is not allowed to allow. What do you mean by allow? And uh, here comes the new development. Because it is now quite clear that uh, there may be a situation in which the state, within which you have terrorists conspiring against another state, uh, this Local, the local government 
is not complicit with the non-state actors. It is not uh, in cahoots with them. It's simply either unable, that is to say militarily, or unwilling, that is to say politically, to act against them. So it's not with them, it's just staying aloof. It's uh, above the fray, so to speak. Now, when is it unable? The first and foremost case is where you have a failing state. If you take present-day Somalia, it's a failing state. Every once in a while I read in the news that uh, an attack was mounted by Al-Shabaab against the Somalian government facility in Mogadishu, which reminds me that there is still a government because the government of Somalia is doing everything except govern. Certainly outside Mogadishu, nobody has heard of it. It's a failing state, and it's been a failing state for a long period of time, as you know. And there have been other failing states which have returned to normalcy of, of a fashion, like Lebanon, Liberia, Sierra Leone, and so on. So Somalia is by no means a unique instance of failing state, but it's the most uh, prominent. However, an inability to act, the unable in the unable or unwilling formula, inability to act uh, is not confined to a failing state. Even where you have a functioning government, the functioning government may not have the actual military ability to cope with the non-state actors, the terrorists, uh, on account of the fact that they are uh, ensconced in the middle of a jungle area or in the desert or in some other place where the terrain does not allow the government uh, the ability to act. Remember, uh, not every country in the world has a very efficient uh, military at its disposal. I'm not referring to Costa Rica, which doesn't have an army at all. But even countries that do have armies very often encounter tremendous difficulties in doing something about non-state actors. And it's not a coincidence that the United States today is uh, fighting non-state actors in a country such as Niger, of which most Americans have never heard. And they think that if anything, it's a mispronunciation of Nigeria. And actually, had it not been for the fact that the special forces present there sustained casualties, no, nobody today even would have known that the U.S. is there. But the U.S. is there because the Niger armed forces are totally incapable of doing anything about the non-state actors, the Boko Haram and so on. Okay. Now, uh, this is inability to act, unable. There is also the issue of unwilling. What is meant by unwilling? What is meant is that the government would perhaps have liked to act and perhaps might have been able to act, but unfortunately there is no support for it in the legislature and in a democracy what can the government do? I mean if it will act against the wishes of the legislature it will lose uh, its uh, power. Uh, remember, I'm talking about most countries in the world, not the American system where the president is uh, independent of Congress. In a parliamentary system such as the UK, if the government uh, loses uh, the confidence of uh, parliament, that's the end of it. And furthermore, uh, perhaps the legislature would support, but the so-called street would not. That is to say, public opinion is totally against action. 
And then the government says, so sorry, we would have liked to act. We are incapable of doing it, not militarily, but politically. So we are not unable, but we are unwilling against, unwilling against our will, so to speak. Not because we want to fail to take action, but we cannot take action. Now, in such a case, remember, the target state, the other state, the one which is the subject, or rather, I'm sorry, the object of the attacks by the non-state actors, can, and occasionally does, approach the local government and say, well, you cannot act, whether you are unable or unwilling, it doesn't matter. We would be prepared to act in lieu of your own forces, on your behalf, so to speak. Allow us to send in troops, and our troops will do what you should have done in the first place. Uh, this would be a consensual action, which of course is not, uh, uh, the, which is not uh, opposed to the general principle of the non-use of force under Article 2, Paragraph 4 of the Charter of the United Nations and customary international law. But it's also important to remember this action, if it does take place, takes place on the basis of the consent within its parameters in case that there are conditions to the consent. And as soon as the consent is withdrawn within reasonable time, you have to pull out. You cannot stay there once the consent has been withdrawn. Nevertheless, it's important to bear in mind, and here I come at long last to the main part of my presentation, cannot forget that the target state has a right, is entitled to exercise self-defense in accordance with Article 51 of the Charter and customary international law. And self-defense is, of course, exercised non-consensually. This is the, the main point here so that uh, the target state can act on the basis of self-defense within the unable or unwilling uh, state against the non-state actors. I call this uh, extraterritorial law enforcement. Uh, I am not 100% happy with that phrase. And a number of people have challenged the use of that phrase. Whenever I'm challenged, I tell the people, well, no problem. Just give me an alternative. And people usually promise to send me an email. I've received uh, over the years thousands of uh, emails. Nobody has yet sent me the alternative proposal. But the main reason why I've chosen the term is to show that there is no international armed conflict between the two states. This is actually a law, a law enforcement action in lieu of the local state. I'm doing what the law, I'm the foreign country, which is the target of the attack, and doing what the local state should have done, failed to do, I'm doing it in its place. This is the idea. Now, in the armed activities uh, case of uh, Congo versus Uganda in uh, 05, the, the court, the majority, simply ignored the issue, which is astonishing because it's a clear-cut case of uh, extraterritorial law enforcement, and it was so argued by Uganda for a full day. The court just ignored it, didn't say a word about it. 
But I'm glad to say that two of the judges, the German Sima and the Dutch Quimans, saw the light, cited me with approval, and called it uh, by that name. Actually, they didn't come with an alternative uh, designation. Okay, so the question is, what is the mission of extraterritorial law enforcement? And I give you here uh, five main uh, aims. Number one, obviously to attack the basis of the non-state actors. Number two, you don't have to stick to the basis. Sometimes they are on the run themselves. They don't have a base. They are in constant movement from one place to another. So attack them while they are en route, so to speak, wherever they are. Number three, decimate the leadership. A very important uh, aim. Number four, again very important, the release hostages. And uh, finally, extract intelligence. There would be other minor aims, but these are the five main purposes as experience shows. Uh, what are the means? Now, the orthodox way of going about it is to send in an expeditionary force. And they will take care of uh, demolishing the bases, attacking the uh, non-state actors who are moving around, decimating the leadership, uh, etc. It's, uh, I want to emphasize the etc. because sometimes there is no choice. If you want to release hostages, that's the only way to go about it. Because the alternative is to shower missiles from abroad on the non-state actors. Uh, the missiles can be actually launched uh, from land, from sea, from the air. And sometimes this is done by drones. So I come to a comment about uh, drones because the public at large, and I hope that uh, that does not uh, obtain in this room, is mesmerized by drones. I was uh, last year in Moscow to speak on another subject. There were a number of generals and colonels and so forth in the room. When the Q&A period started until the end, they ignored completely my presentation. The only subject that, where they elicited my views was about drones, and they didn't like what I said. Okay, too bad. Now, drones, as I have to point out, are simply aerial platforms. And there is nothing special about them, except that they are remotely piloted. And nowadays, in the era of high technology, it's no big deal. That is to say, instead of the pilot sitting in the cockpit, the pilot is sitting in uh, usually a caravan or uh, wherever, uh, perhaps thousands of miles away, but he is still guiding the drone. The drone is not a auto fully autonomous weapon. We are years away from fully autonomous weapons. The drone is actually guided by a person. I was going to say a man, but I can tell you in Israel it's usually today a woman. And uh, that person can be the expressions that we use usually in the new manuals is either in the loop or on the loop. In the loop means that he's guiding it all the time. You know, it's like my reference earlier to micromanaging. On the loop is where the drone has pre-programming instructions and the person who's guiding it 
is just supervising it. That is to say, watching to make sure that the drone is following instructions. But should the drone somehow become a drone, uh, a, I'm sorry, a rogue drone, you abort or even destroy the drone. There is no problem. In case that you think that this is today exceptional in air warfare, it is not. Very often in modern air warfare, the pilot is basically a driver. He brings the F-15 or F-16 to a certain coordinate. He releases the guided missile, and the guided missile is then taken over by, by ground control. And they direct the missile to its target because sometimes it's too much to expect the pilot of an F-15 and F-16 to, uh, on the one hand, attack a specific target, on the other hand, watch out for incoming uh, anti-air missiles and so on. We recently lost an F-16 uh, to Syrian fire be precisely because of that. Because a pilot in an F-16 who had seconds earlier destroyed an Iranian target, did not watch out for an incoming rather uh, obsolete missile, which he sort of uh, denigrated, and at the last moment realized his mistake and was luckily uh, in a position to still ditch the aircraft, although he was wounded, but he's alive, and uh, the aircraft was destroyed, which is too bad. But you, you see the, the, the pressure on a modern pilot in warfare conditions to multitask is sometimes beyond uh, the pilot. Uh, a feminist here would say because he's a man, because women, as you know, are much better in multitasking than men. But it hasn't happened yet. We have women pilots, but it hasn't happened to them yet. Maybe that's why it hasn't happened to them, because they're so good at multitasking. Okay, uh, now also remember drones mostly are only for surveillance uh, purposes. 85% of all drones deal only with surveillance. Approximately 15%, the larger drones of course, uh, will have the capability to launch missiles themselves. But once more it doesn't matter because the drone can actually uh, coexist with an F-16. The drone may be a small surveillance drone, but once it detects the target, it identifies the target, it instructs the pilot of the F-16 who's there, relying on its information to launch the missile. So what's, what's the difference? Instead of it being done by one, it's done by two uh, platforms. And uh, finally, the drone has admittedly a major advantage. This is why it's being used. It's not only the cost, it's much less costly than an F-15 or F-16, but it's also the ability to loiter over the target practically indefinitely, as long as the fuel uh, is there. 24 hours is today very common. And in the course of those 24 hours, the person on the ground, in or on the loop, instructs the, the drone to change altitude, to change angle, to change direction and so forth, in order to gain full information about the target. That's the advantage of the drone. That's why it's used so, so much nowadays by at least some countries in the world, including the US. Now, the most 
famous case of extraterritorial law enforcement, although the expression was never used in the context, is of course taking out bin Laden. Because what were the facts? Team six of the SEALs went into Pakistan without permission from the local government. And this was not an enemy government, but an allied government in Islamabad. Why was the Pakistani government not even consulted? Because everybody knows what would have happened had it been consulted. The Pakistani government, unfortunately, is fully infiltrated by the Taliban and their supporters, especially in the intelligence community. And had Pakistan been informed that bin Laden is hiding in the compound where he was, bin Laden would have disappeared. It would have taken 10 additional years to locate him. Remember, it took 10 years to locate him. So nobody could afford 10 additional years. And anyone who believes that nobody in the Pakistani government knew of what was happening in this compound one mile away from their equivalent of West Point is so naive that, uh, you, you know, believe that, you'll believe anything. This is clearly a case of a government unable or unwilling to act. In this case, it's both unable and unwilling. One part of it unable, one part unwilling. So the U.S. decided to do it on its own. Now, there are other examples uh, from the recent past. Uh, one is uh, Turkey has been doing it in northern Iraq for years. It's now doing it in Syria. I'm not sure that in Syria this is more than a pretense, and that's why I added the word allegedly here. They claim that the PKK is... Uh, uh, omnipresent amongst the Kurds in Syria. I'm not sure. But there is no question about it that the PKK is a Kurdish terrorist organization, not to be confused with the government of the Kurdish enclave in Iraq, in North Iraq. It's separate from them. They, actually, there is a lot of bad blood between the government and the PKK. And the PKK attacks targets in Turkey. So Turkey it takes action against them in North Iraq because nobody is able or willing to do so in Iraq. The government in Baghdad has no presence in those mountains of uh, the, north, uh, the Northwest, and uh, the Kurdish government is too weak to do anything about it. Then I'm giving you another example, and that is Colombia attacked uh, actually a FARC base in Ecuador in order to successfully release hostages without the consent of the Ecuadorian government. And there are other examples from the more remote past. One of them is so famous I don't want to go into it, and that's the Caroline case. But nobody is, uh, in this country remembers well enough, or most people in this country don't remember well enough the 1916 uh, case, uh, which shows that for some reason a well-known Hollywood movie uh, is not, uh, not been released recently, and that's the Viva Via movie about Pancho Villa, a Mexican bandit who crossed the Rio Grande River and attacked uh, with uh, lethal consequences uh, farms in the southwest of this country. The administration in Washington protested several times. The president was Woodrow Wilson. 
But the trouble is that Mexico at the time went through a 10-year period of revolution, 10 years, uh, during which the government in Mexico City had no power whatsoever in the north. And uh, therefore, the government uh, apologized uh, to the Wilson administration, but they said, as you well know, uh, there's nothing that we can do. Well, there's nothing that you can do. So the US, again, under Wilson, remember a president was usually regarded as a semi-saint, sent uh, an expeditionary force under General Pershing that uh, chased uh, via 300 miles into Mexico, 300 miles. They ultimately wounded him, they failed to kill him, and fortunately for General Pershing, another conflict started across the Atlantic, and he was recalled and sent to lead another expeditionary force through which he got his fame and glory. Uh, Via remained alive until finally assassinated, not, not by the United States. Okay, but now I'm coming to the most modern example, and that is the action against ISIS in Syria. Uh, when the United States launched the action for the first time in uh, 40, 2014, it used explicitly the language of uh, unable or unwilling, because curiously enough, what they said is ISIS in Syria had attacked targets in Iraq. We are coming to the support of Iraq in, collect, in, a, an exercise of, in the exercise of collective self-defense. Self-defense against ISIS in Syria because of the armed attack against Iraq. In case that you think that this is a peculiarity of the US government, I want to remind you the coalition of as many as 60 states has joined it. So if you are looking for the general practice of states, it's there. This is now customary international law. You cannot deny it. And uh, therefore, the whole doctrine of extraterritorial law enforcement is now, in my opinion, fully entrenched in international law. And I emphasize collective self-defense. Because I have to admit, until 2014, if you ask me, can you use extraterritorial law enforcement in collective as distinct from individual self-defense, I would have had doubts about it. The difference, I hope, uh, is clearly apparent to you. Individual self-defense is where I'm attacked and I respond. Collective self-defense is when you are attacked and I respond. I respond in... Uh, a case where you have been attacked. I have not been subjected to an armed attack immediately. But, of course, Article 51 permits collective self-defense because this was the lesson learned from World War II. The lesson learned from World War II was that when Hitler attacked, uh, first uh, annexed Austria forcibly, and then attacked Czechoslovakia and so forth, the Western countries should have responded then and not waited until later when it became much more difficult to actually uh, defeat him.
Now, what are the requisite conditions of self-defense in general? In general, there are three conditions, which are uh, necessity, proportionality, and immediacy. The International Court of Justice, in its wisdom, admitted uh, explicitly only the first two and not the third. But I want to explain. The three conditions are derived from where? From whom? The answer is American Secretary of State Daniel Webster in the famous correspondence relating to the Caroline case. And in his correspondence, he's using all three conditions. Must be necessary, must be proportionate, it must be, he even used the term instant, I'm calling it immediacy. Of course, immediacy has to be taken uh, flexibly. Now, condition one, necessity. Uh, the idea is that uh, repetition of the attack by the non-state actors is expected. Therefore, the response is indeed responsive and not punitive. You're not punishing them for something that happened in the past. You are actually trying to deter them and to disenable them to proceed with their uh, outrageous action. And uh, if there is an opportunity, you should first approach the local government and give them an opportunity to act as they should have uh, within their sovereign uh, jurisdiction. You don't approach them when, only when it's on the face of it futile, as in the case of bin Laden. Uh, the second is proportionality. What is meant here in proportionality is that you strictly attack, you strictly confine the attack against the non-state actors, against the terrorists. That is to say, you encounter government troops, you encounter government facilities, you obviously encounter civilians, you don't attack them. If you do attack them, it's an international armed conflict. It's not an international armed conflict because you do not attack them. You are not pursuing any other objective except that of eliminating the non-state actors. Thirdly, immediacy, you're supposed to act uh, within a relatively short time so that uh, action and reaction are transparent, so that the reaction is transparently a reaction to the action and not something that is totally unrelated. Uh, then I want to emphasize the limits on state, both states. And the limits are, if not the same, they are the mirror image of each other. The expeditionary force is not supposed to attack the local government and its forces, as I stated before. And perhaps more importantly, the local government is not, suppo not supposed to all of a sudden flex muscles that have not been used against the terrorists and now they are being flexed against the incoming expeditionary force. You are unable, remember? If you are unable, remain unable. Don't show ability all of a sudden in, against the wrong uh, object. And uh, bear in mind, there is no self-defense against self-defense. It's a very important principle that must be borne in mind. Which means, if the local government opens fire on the expeditionary force, this is an armed attack within your territory against the incoming forces from a foreign, from, from your viewpoint, a foreign state. You are not allowed to do it. 
Because if you do it, you are acting against self-defense, so you cannot be in self-defense yourself. It hasn't happened yet. It's likely to happen. Now, uh, the rationale I've already made clear, and I want to move to the conclusion. Uh, the conclusion is, and I'll, then I'll make a comment. Uh, the conclusion is that uh, the subject today is of the utmost importance. You can see Bin Laden, ISIS, and so forth, what's more important than that? And as I said before, it's utterly topical. And I'm sure that there will be further instances of the use of uh, extraterritorial law enforcement. That said, not every I has been dotted and not every T has been crossed in the practice of states. And therefore, I cannot entirely give uh, correct answers to obvious questions. For example, does the main principle of proportionality applicable in the use in Bello relating to collateral damage to civilians while you're attacking an enemy uh, military objective. Do these rules apply in extraterritorial law enforcement? I don't know. It hasn't happened yet. It makes sense, but on the other hand, remember, there is no international conflict. So why should the law of armed conflict apply? Yet, uh, this is the best solution in my opinion. So I would very much hope that this would be the rule. But I can, cannot tell you that it is the rule. And I have uh, strictly uh, circumscribed my lecture to Lex Lata, the law as it exists, and not the Lex Ferenda, the law as it should be in my mind. Finally, a post-conclusion comment uh, triggered by an article that uh, John uh, Moore wrote about uh, ICJ, the dean referred to it as well in uh, 2012 about the ICJ record. And as he pointed out, ICJ has dealt with the use of force uh, five times. Corfu, Nicaragua, oil platforms, armed activities, the wall. Now, ignore for the time being Corfu. A long time ago, splendid judgment, written by a different court, and between Corfu, 1949, and Nicaragua, 1986, there is a gap which uh, goes beyond uh, being temporal. It's a qualitative gap. Then came Nicaragua. I'm one of the outspoken critics of Nicaragua. I think that Nicaragua, the majority judgment that is in Nicaragua, is uh, in fact faulty on any number of grounds. And uh, I wished at the time, and still do, that uh, the minority opinions of Judge Schwebel and Judge Jennings would have prevailed, but they didn't. Okay. In 1986, if you would have asked me, I would have said this is the lowest point in the history of the court. Then uh, came the future record in the still-to-be-written armed activities, oil platforms, and wall cases, which showed that Nicaragua actually was not far from being the lowest point, was perhaps the highest point, at least since the 1980s. 
because the armed activities, oil platforms, and wall uh, are mind-boggling in many respects. And to show you just one example that pertains to my lecture, and it's in one of the slides that I skipped, uh, in the armed activities case, the court, which refused to go into law, remembered, into extraterritorial law enforcement, nevertheless said that it cannot take place where hundreds of kilometers from the border. Oh, really? And what do I do when the non-state actor, the terrorists, happen to be based hundreds of kilometers from the borders? I avoid action because it's too far away from the border? What does it matter to me if they are two miles from the border or 200 miles from the border? I go where they are. This is what I'm pursuing. So this is sheer and utter nonsense, yet it's part of the judgment of the International Court of Justice. The moral of the story is that perhaps uh, a younger generation, which is partly present in this room, will in time uh, replace uh, the old judges in the International Court of Justice and will raise the level of uh, the applied uh, stratum of international law. Thank you. Now, I think that we have a few minutes for... Yeah, 15 minutes at this point. Okay. Well, why don't you run it? You are, you are the boss. Okay. We'll, uh, we'll do 15 yeah. minutes of Q&A. Okay. There were two hands at that end of the... Well, it's very hard to speculate, and remember these are uh, diverse judgments issued by diverse panels of the courts because uh, membership in the court varies every few years uh, over a fairly long period. Nicaragua, that's 1986, the world, that's 2004. So it's between, uh, these are the two bracketing dates. But my own uh, conjecture, such as it is, is that uh, it's very popular nowadays to be anti-American. And this was true also in 1986. As a matter of fact, it's hard to explain Nicaragua except on the basis of anti-Americanism. Because what most people forget is 1986 cannot be addressed separately from 1984. 1986 is when they issued the judgment on the merits. 84 is when you, have the, you had the issue of preliminary uh, judgment, where the court refused to allow El Salvador to appear before them. And then in 1986, they have the nerve, the only expression that fits is the Yiddish expression, chutzpah, 
1986, they had the nerve to say that the whole thing revolves around uh, an act of aggression in which El Salvador is involved. You don't listen to El Salvador and then you issue a judgment that relates directly to them. Why do you do it? Because you wanted to niddle the United States. The same is true of uh, oil platform. Nobody could deny that Iranian missiles were launched at American uh, ships. And then the court says, well, it's true, it happened. On the other hand, uh, we are not convinced that the idea was to necessarily sink American ships. Maybe it was some other state. Maybe they wanted to sink ships uh, flying the flag of Montenegro. Therefore, there was no armed attack by Iran against the United States. Armed activities I've already referred to, and the wall is uh, something which is delusional. If you want uh, to understand uh, what was about, uh, I shall not even refer you to the dissenting judgment of Judge Bergenthal, but to the separate opinion of Judge Rosalind Higgins, which makes Millsmith of the majority opinion, which she then co-signs, for reasons that I don't want to explain here. So uh, this is merely a conjecture. It's very popular to be anti-American, and it's uh, one ticket to being re-elected to the court. Charlie. Bobby said, um, am I incorrect, or clarify for me with your uh, idea of extraterritorial law enforcement, are you saying then that international human rights law governs that activity? And if it does, what about the obligation to try to capture, which uh, is part of international human rights law versus uh, an operation under international humanitarian law, law of armed conflict? How high are the mighty fallen? Since when are you so concerned about human rights? <laughs> I mean, uh, this is similar to what I've said before in the sense that in the court it's very fashionable to be anti-American, and in the United States it's very fashionable to refer to human rights law when they have no bearing upon the case. I have not mentioned human rights even once in my lecture today. I do not deny that human rights have some minor impact on the law of armed conflict, but it's very minor. It has nothing to do with the use of bellum. Nothing whatsoever to do with the use of bellum. If it has anything to do with anything, it's the use in bellum. This is use ad bellum. Use ad bellum is the law of the charter. And even though the charter uh, mentions human rights again in a very minor and uh, insignificant way, the Charter is all about removing the scourge of war. The Charter is not about human rights. The Charter is not about uh, the status of women. The Charter is not about uh, uh, providing milk to children. All these things have developed in the record of the United Nations. They have nothing to do with the Charter. The Charter has to do with the use of force and it, the two exceptions to the use of force, namely, a, the power of the Security Council to act in a binding way under Chapter 7, and B, self-defense. So what, has, what have human rights got to do with it? Well, it's, it's because you use law enforcement. That's what triggered my mind. I'm not advocating that. I'm 
just, I'm just questioning. I, I'm thinking that when, if people hear the words law enforcement, they're going to be thinking of international human rights law as opposed to other modalities. Well, I had no intention to bring human rights into the picture when I used the term law enforcement. I do not deny that this is a possibility, but this is left with uh, actually the last paragraph here where I'm saying that there is still a lacuna, there is a gap, simply because there is no, st in no state practice sufficient to draw uh, lasting conclusions. And here I admit that uh, future state practice may show that human rights may have some applicability here. I, <coughs> I personally doubt it, and I indicated that I hope that the development in the future <coughs> will actually bear out the applicability not of human rights law, which is very inadequate and insufficient in such a situation, but the use in bellow. That is the law of proportionality, the rule relating to collateral damage and so forth. But this is a private, uh, if you wish, bias on my part. So I do not uh, underscore it. I merely point out that that's my view as to what should happen. Okay. Other questions? Yes. Sir, so you're, you're quick to say that Pakistan did not allow us in, and I, I think that's probably the likely answer. But if, they, if there was a phone call, we said, hey, can we come in, and somebody in the government said yes, even if they denied it publicly, would, would that still be legal? And would that be valid consent? If they say, yeah, you can come, but we're going to tell everybody we said no for obvious political purposes, would that be okay? Would that be valid consent? A phone call to, by whom and to whom? So the U.S. government calling Pakistan saying, will you give us consent to come in? Pakistan obviously publicly wouldn't admit that, but isn't it possible that they would say, sure, but for obvious reasons we're going to deny that and yell at you on TV, would that be valid consent? The answer is yes, in principle. Look, I'll give you a counterfactual example. Uh, Afghanistan in 01, right? If I were the advisor to the Taliban government, I would have told them, to respond to the American ultimatum by saying, listen, Bin Laden is in Tora Bora. You know what? You go ahead. Here is Tora Bora. Let's see how powerful you are. And I want to remind you, the US went into Tora Bora a few months later and failed to take him out, right? Total failure of the United States. That's why it took 10 years to find him. So had the US went to Tora Bora a few months earlier, there is no reason to believe that it would have been more successful. But governments very often act uh, impetuously and uh, precipitately without listening to reason, without thinking out all the possibilities. So they are averse to the idea of allowing another state to act within their jurisdiction as if it were the sovereign, which it is not. I'm the sovereign, not you. Uh, having said that, as I pointed out, very often also uh, you, as the target state, uh, are averse to the idea of seeking my consent because you are afraid that this will be counterproductive uh, with the, the case of, uh, of bin Laden. Uh, remember, the U.S. had very close relations with Pakistan <coughs> at the time. 
there would have been no problem to approach Pakistan uh, on a number of levels. But having uh, thoroughly examined these possibilities, uh, the people in charge in, in DC reached the right decision not to do it because it would be totally against the interests of the United States. So if you cannot possibly get the consent of the other government to act effectively, avoid it. Let me add on that point. I agree 100% with uh, Dr. Dinstein on that point, but this really relates as well to yet another one of the issues in which the International Court of Justice invents a legal rule out of whole cloth in the Nicaragua case, in which you will recall they said you had to have uh, a, a public announcement of an invitation in. And that, even in a setting where you had a, uh, a uh, uh, the Rio Treaty, which basically uh, indicates that an armed aggression against El Salvador is simultaneously an armed aggression against the United States of America. So I, I think as uh, uh, Yoram has indicated, there are many settings in which consent might be given, but a uh, government might be very reluctant to um, announce publicly that it has done that. So I think this is yet another indication where the International Court of Justice is simply uh, flatly wrong. Uh, and there's no legal basis whatsoever in customary or law uh, or policy or anywhere else uh, for that uh, uh, argument w which was put out by the court in Nicaragua. If I'm allowed to sure. add on to what you've said. Uh, this week we have celebrated uh, the anniversary of the famous Anschluss of Austria by Hitler. Now, this is a very good example. Austria, for various reasons, not least being infiltrated by Austrian Nazis, did not uh, appeal to any help by the Western countries and merely succumbed, and this is why it was a pure annexation without any bloodshed at all. However, Britain and France, based on the charter, had every right to say an armed attack had been launched against Austria. True, Austria has not appealed to us for help, we are acting in self-defense. What is, does self-defense mean? This is our self-interest. We want to act now when we can stop Hitler. And had they acted then, we now know the historical record shows all the German generals were prepared to rebel against Hitler because they thought that he was acting recklessly. And they fully expected the Western countries to draw the line in the sand. But of course, the Western countries at the time were led by Chamberlain and Daladier and didn't do that. Unfortunately, the rest is written in blood in history. So it shows that the court was entirely wrong. And how could the judges who were actually born before World War II and were familiar with the story of the Anschluss ignored it altogether, as they did. But uh, the only thing that I can say, as it were, in their favor, it's one of many mistakes. So they made other mistakes and even more dangerous ones, such as the, the idea that if you do not send in a report to the Security Council 
as you are supposed to under Article 51, you forfeit the right of self-defense. They didn't even think about the, the obvious. If I forfeit the right of self-defense, who benefits from it? The answer is the aggressor. There are always two parties, an aggressor and a party in self-defense. If I'm not in self-defense, that means that the aggressor is not the aggressor. I failed to send in a report and therefore his aggression, aggression is all of a sudden sanctified. Does that make sense? Especially when you have so many countries in Africa where in the capital city you probably have two or three graduates of law school and they're not necessarily in the legal advisor's office of the foreign ministry. They don't even know that they're supposed to send in a report. And therefore that country loses the right of self-defense. On what basis? Where does Article 51 say that this is a cardinal rule? This is a procedural rule. You'd better send in a report. If you don't send in a report, I agree that this will be counted against you. That is to say, when I'm assessing the evidence, I'm likely to say, inter alia, you didn't send in a report. It shows that maybe you didn't think that you were acting in self-defense. But this is not conclusive. The court thinks that it did. And I could go on and on like this about the court in Nicaragua. But as I told you, forget about the court in Nicaragua. Think about the court in later cases. And Nicaragua all of a sudden makes much sense to me. Professor Denstein, thank you very much for a superb uh, presentation. We'll now take a 15-minute break and start the uh, first panel.